welcome to episode 44 of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast. As always, I am your host, Chris Hales. Glad to be bringing you another episode of the only show that features your original classical guitar music. In this show, listeners simply send MP3s of their own recordings, and I air them on the show. So if this is your first time joining me, I'm not quite sure how you came about finding this podcast, but... If you are a composer, and particularly a composer of works for classical guitar, you can have them played on the show. The only requirement is that it's a original piece, and it's a real recording of a guitar, not MIDI-generated or anything like that. So it's a great way to share your music and hear original music from others. You know, and over the last couple of years, there's been a wide range of music on this show for its signature instrument. I'd say music that has many different influences has made it to this show. And we've heard how a lot of different approaches are being brought to the classical guitar. It's such a great instrument for composition. It's challenging, it's limited, and yet unlimited in some ways. You know, there's things that you can do on guitar that you can't do on traditional classical instruments, such as strumming. And it has a wonderful range of both uh, tone and range itself, you know, note range. I just love the guitar. I love it. And it's, it's an instrument that you almost have to somewhat play to write for. Many have attempted... And, uh, you know, we've talked about composers who were not guitarists but wrote music for Segovia. You know, so many great pieces have come about that way, but there was a there was a fairly tedious process, you know, of them getting it workable for the guitar, and then, of course, they were subject to Segovia's tendencies. But <laughs> in general, I think most people composing for the guitar are guitarists themselves and I mean it really is I, 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 I prefer to play music that was written by guitarists even though some of my favorite pieces uh, were written by non-guitarists in fact many of them but but it is so fun to play music that just sits well on the guitar that's idiomatic and that you know is practical a lot of guitar music, I mean, it's great, but is needlessly hard, I think. And there there could be better ways of, of, you know, voicing certain phrases and things like that. Anyway, it comes to mind because if you've been listening to this show long enough or to enough episodes, from time to time I've talked about what I do for a living, which is I make accompaniment tracks for musical theater. And musical theater offers a, a wide variety of style, and so it's I've, I've I've recorded like every kind of music almost for that job specifically. The only one I think I think I that I've never seen. Well, no, that's not even true. I was gonna say heavy metal, <laughs> but there actually is some maybe not heavy metal, but there's there's some like rock musicals that depends on what you consider heavy metal. Anyway, uh. A lot of badly written guitar parts. I've come across a lot of badly written guitar parts over the years. 
a lot of stuff that just is either flat out impossible or just impractical and it's a pain because uh, I do my best when I'm recording a guitar part that somebody's written to honor what they've written but it is so nice when somebody's written a guitar part that works so we're recording a show right now that is is I don't know 60% nylon guitar I mean it's like got a good chunk of nylon guitar that's well written and I've never come across this in a musical a lot of them will use a little bit of nylon for flavor here and there but this one is it's a ton and it's it's difficult music but it's practical it's it's well written and it just it features the classical guitar so much and so I always appreciate well written guitar music been writing some myself you know, that's uh, something I've tried to always have a piece in the works. And, I, I mean, I've kind of attempted that, really, my whole life, but I've been better about that the last few years. Like, just always working on something, setting aside time to work on it. Whether I'm feeling it or not, I come up with something usually with, you know, if I, if I spend an hour, 45 minutes to an hour, sometimes I come up with two measures but then those two measures spark a huge jump in progress for the next time I said I you know spend 45 minutes to an hour on a piece so sometimes like yeah you'll you'll sit down and it's like you work forever you know it could be a few hours and you've you've got one measure but often like i i've had to learn don't dismiss what you did i can't dismiss what I did on a piece if I didn't make any progress because I either ruled certain ideas out or came up with just one measure, one new idea that next time when I come back fresh is going to get going. But that being said, I've been working on this piece for way too long. And it's I like the piece. I'm happy with it. And it, you know I kind of see where it's going. And when it's done, I'm going to feel like, you know, I feel like it's in a range of like not my best work, but but good and a, a work I'm happy with. Well, I mean, we'll see when it's all said and done. <laughs> but it's not good enough to justify how long it has been taking me to compose. But as uh, you might know from previous episodes, I acquired a new dog this year and kind of disrupted my guitar routine for a few months. I'm now back into like full routine. The dog does not need so much immediate attention first thing in the morning. And so I've, I've managed to uh, secure other times to spend with the dog and to work with him. But that guitar practice is now back in place. And so it's I'm like returning to working on this piece more consistently. And I don't know, it's like I, I hit the spot the other day and I was like, if I written myself into a corner... And ultimately I decided, no, we're going to keep going down this road. And we'll just see what it's like when we're done. It's another attempt at sonata form, a form I've always struggled with. It's such a simple concept, but execution is, is tough, I think, for sonata form. If you don't know what sonata form is, it is a form that was used... And it evolved, but but kind of as we know it today and what it became and is still used today, 
you know, it's the form that it's like the first movement of nearly every classical period symphony concerto uh, sonata uh, romantic period same thing and so like any symphony by Beethoven Mozart Tchaikovsky like there it's going to be in the first movement's going to be in sonata form and in some cases like like Beethoven's fifth symphony the final movement is also in sonata form and what what it is is you have a primary theme this theme is established and then you have a it goes into a secondary theme after a short transition and you play the secondary theme and then there's a cadence that wraps up the first section of the piece which is called the exposition traditionally it repeats in a concerto you'd have the exposition played and then on the repeat is when the soloist would play so you have like the the orchestral introduction first time second time is with a soloist that's kind of how like any Mozart concerto is going to be things like that and it can be like a very long piece and it can also be used in like it's just how much you want to expand on your ideas right like even little sonatinas are usually in sonata form so the exposition is followed by what's called the development section and that's where you expand your two themes. Um, you know, I always thought it was like you combine them and like mix them together. But but the more I've studied it, like that's really not often what composers were doing in the development section. They were just kind of developing the themes. You have a little bit of um, overlap, but not as much as I initially thought. Anyway, but it's you're expanding these themes. It's very um, unsettled it's very unresolved you know it's kinda like a musical journey in a way and then you come to the recapitulation which is you come back to your original theme and your original key and you know if you're being real traditional your second theme which was in a which was in a second key is when it's played in the recapitulation is now in your original key then you might have a coda or something to finish it off but that's traditional sonata form and there's just a world of possibilities it's a great structure for a piece because it's it works it gives you this nice beginning middle and end but a lot you can do with it and you know we don't care today about being so rigid with structure and rules so I think it is actually very like freeing to work within a structure like that but then take your liberties as you want it's kind of always been my approach and for whatever reason man it, it's a form that like simple in concept but uh, I, I've had a hard time with the execution so we'll see well and there's another uh, little thing going on with this piece that I've ultimately come to a conclusion about I'm going to take a little side road and I'll come back to that. The composer of musicals, Andrew Lloyd Webber, has been accused a time or two of plagiarism. But this one I came across, I don't remember how I came across this, but they he has a song called I Don't Know How to Love Him. It's from the, the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And he's been accused of ripping off I don't know how to love him from Felix Mendelssohn's 
violin concerto from the second movement. And if you listen to the second movement of that violin concerto, I can kind of, I mean I can hear what they're talking about, but accusers the 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 criers of plagiarism are absolutely wrong. I mean it's not even in the realm of plagiarism. It's not even like towing the line. So that that kind of drives me nuts. The the people who cry plagiarism on everything because something sounds kind of like something else. Well, so what if something sounds kind of like something else? There's a difference between like directly ripping somebody off and having something that might sound similar to something else. And so I'm talking about this not from like a legal perspective, but from just a creative perspective and like, you know, maybe your own integrity. Sir Andrew did not rip <laughs> Felix Mendelssohn. I don't even hear like that and say, oh, that's where he got the idea. I, I, I don't think so. He's also been accused of ripping off Pink Floyd. And that's like the theme from Phantom of the Opera compared to the chromatic run in, I think it's the song Echoes by Pink Floyd. Like Pink Floyd doesn't own a, chrom a descending chromatic scale. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, so going into that idea of okay, well, a blatant ripoff or something that sounds kind of like it. Or there's also this where the, hey, I acknowledge writing something that sounds kind of like this. That's where I got the idea, but I wrote something different out of that idea. This is a, a thing I've done intentionally before and many more times unintentionally where... I'll write something and it sounds like something else and I didn't realize that I had something in my head <laughs> and it crept into my piece. That happened once with a, uh, it was just like an assignment when I was in school uh, that I did to score this like, to score like four minutes of this documentary on Egypt and I had been listening to Tchaikovsky's Sixth symphony <laughs> previous to that and without realizing it I wrote stuff that like was very very reminiscent of Tchaikovsky's sixth I would say it would be like a John Williams level of <laughs> not John Williams the guitarist John Williams the film composer who's often accused of plagiarism I would say it's about the level of similarity that a lot of his works have had to I mean, he, he's always getting accused of ripping off this or that. I can hear what people are talking about. Doesn't bother me. I think it sounds to me like the guy's like getting ideas from great works, but he's doing something different, totally unique, something, something else, you know, jumping off somebody's work. But that, that was a, that one was a case where I would say I had that, that level of similarity, but with this piece I'm working on right now, I was trying to come up with a secondary theme and I've been listening to that Mendelssohn concerto, the one that Andrew Lloyd Webber is accused of borrowing from. And I kind of did an intentional borrow. I mean, I didn't, I don't know how to explain it other than you'd have to listen to them side by side. 
but where I I'm like I kind of like what he did with his second theme it's slower it's a different tempo than the first theme and it's kind of this pretty contrast to the first theme and I liked that like this I wanted to write something in a in contrast like that I liked that idea and so I took a similar phrase to his melody it's not the exact same but a similar phrase however doing something completely different with it but as I've been expanding in the development section there's one part where it's like oh there you can kind of hear a little bit of Mendelssohn right there so the conclusion I came to was okay this was influenced by Mendelssohn okay I've borrowed a little bit here I have no absolutely no internal problem with doing that <laughs> and you know this music's his music's public domain so I wouldn't be in any kind of legal issue there's no there's no legal issue to worry about there if I were to like publish and sell the piece but I'm not talking about legal things I'm talking about like just the integrity of composition I have zero problem with with doing that acknowledging it and, and but it's a it's a different piece it's a completely different take on a similar idea uh, his is way better than mine but sometimes I've I've learned a lot of my best tools from imitating composers I love and many of those great composers also borrowed from their influences so I'm curious uh, I'd, I'd love to hear listener takes on this I, I would imagine the opinions range pretty wide maybe not yeah, if you want to compare some of these things we're talking about, the uh, song I Don't Know How to Love Him by Andrew Lloyd Webber compared to Felix Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto in E minor, second movement. It starts right off. It's just the the opening theme. That's what they're talking about. You can also compare Webber's Phantom of the Opera to Pink Floyd Echoes. And uh, if you're upset that he used a chromatic run... <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say to you. And then when my piece is finished and eventually aired on the show, you can compare it to Mendelssohn and see what you think. But I have no problem doing that. I'd much rather do that, acknowledge that I'm doing something similar, and then make sure that I'm not just copying them and making sure that I'm doing original ideas with the idea or with the the phrase or whatever it is you're, you are borrowing. I mean, that's, we do that all the time. We as guitarists playing other people's works, I guess. How many themes and variations are there on works? Like, like, you know, Paganini wrote a theme and variations. And, like, two other composers, at least, wrote their own theme on variations. <laughs> theme and variations from that. Or am I getting that mixed up? Let's see. Uh, Brahms, Brahms did one, and so did, what's his name, the pianist, uh, List. But now that I think about it, those variations might not be on Paganini's theme and variation. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Point is, you know, how many times do we see theme and variations that the theme comes from another composer? For example, Fernando Sor has the, the variations on a theme by Mozart, right? It's that exact thing. 
which that's more close though that's actually taking their theme using it and then making variations off of it I'm not even talking about that level but in that case composers acknowledging hey I'm working off another guy's idea okay uh, how about some email I've probably rambled enough about that time for some email man it is like such a gorgeous day the heat wave has passed where I live and man, I gotta tell you this is my favorite time of year like September October November absolutely my favorite time of year it's a great time to get outside get out in the woods get out on the lake and then you know come home and watch a scary movie or two probably be doing some horror movie talk in the next episode probably just going to be a thing from here on out okay i have an email here from aaron hackett aaron says hey chris i just finished listening to the episode where you read my email. I am now caught up on the episodes and looking forward to more. I never knew atonal music was really a thing, but after hearing your discussions about it in multiple episodes, I thought I would try to find some examples. What I have heard so far, I just don't grasp. I certainly don't feel a pull towards listening to more. However, I did come across a song about atonal music I thought you might enjoy. It even has a shout out to the composer, in quotes, who must not be named having listened to your podcast made this so much better than if I had not hope you get a kick out of it to answer your question I don't sight read I do have some note reading knowledge from piano lessons many years ago and I would like to learn how to read for guitar so far however I just default to tab I know it's lazy I saw some kind of guitar ensemble is going to be at Weber State College the second weekend of September any chance you would be going I never have been to something like that, but I may try to attend. Thanks again for the great show, and I hope you enjoy the video. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'll be making it to the Weber State thing. In fact, I believe that would probably be today as I'm recording this. So, uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I'm getting due. I need to get out and go see some live classical guitar, but it, it has been a bit. It's one of those things that, uh, I think when my kids are like grown up, I would like to try to get a little more involved in the classical guitar scene around here, which would include just catching more shows, but also like performing and just general. But uh, in the same way that uh, acquiring a puppy <laughs> was a setback for guitar for a while, children are a much larger scale version of that. <laughs> So maybe one day I watched this video. It was hilarious. It's like this, um, the song singing about atonal music and yeah, it really cracked me up. And well, there's a line in there <laughs> said emotion is for simple folk. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> I don't have any more to say on atonal music. I don't think just, uh, I will say, if you've written atonal music for classical guitar, hey, you can feature it on this show. Believe me, I'll, I'll play it. There's some borderline atonal music. And I say, well, there's even some atonal music that I can enjoy. I don't mind really dissonant music if it works. But I, I don't like just noise. <laughs> you know, there's, there's some like pretty dissonant guitar music that I think ends up being really cool. 
You know, there's like a like Brower, Brower music. You know, I think it can be really cool. I've I've never played a single Brower piece, believe it or not. And I've heard it's very fun to play, so I I'd like to give it a try. But in general, like it's it's just not not my thing. It's a little it's that real dissonant stuff I can find. I don't mind it in small doses. You know, but but it's a weird way to compose in my mind to just like that's the kind of music you write all the time. It's like I I don't understand painters who just want to paint like abstract weird stuff. Like I can see the allure of doing some of that, but like don't you want to just like paint a tree once in a while? I would. But then there's 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 like dissonant music and and you know kind of different stuff. And then there's stuff that just goes way beyond that. And I think you just get so much of that in the classical world. I mean, I saw this like thread on the internet about it was this this cellist complaining that he hates classical music. He says, he claims that like he hates classical music and most of the musicians he knows also hate classical music and they all just play it because that's how they make their living but they want to play like modern stuff and I'm just like okay well (laughs) I mean they can't make money doing that because no one wants to hear it but he's just like going on carrying on about how like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony gets played too much I'm like it's because it's one of the most beautiful pieces ever written it should be played a lot it should be played every year absolutely that's just an incredible opinion to have. I, I, I just don't understand it one bit. And I, I've been around musicians like that. Musicians that, like, seem to hate their music. And here, you know what? Like, you know what's not interesting? Rock music on a cello. Or pop music on a cello or whatever. It, it's just... It's just not. Man, if you want to play, like, different music, you should have chose a different instrument, man. I hate that attitude. Yeah. I mean, I just love to play. I love to play. And I love to play all kinds of music. When I was in college and I was playing in the orchestra, we used to go play for the... um, In Utah, there's like this cowboy poetry thing every year. And the country singer, Michael Martin Murphy, (laughs) would come play it. And he did this thing where he had the orchestra back him up. So every year we would go play this Michael Martin Murphy concert and everyone hated it and thought it was like so dumb that they had to do this. And I thought it was a blast. I never understood that. I never understood why guy why people didn't want to go play it. It was really fun. For one thing it was different uh cuz we were always working on some like really difficult symphony or or something. And then, like, for a couple weeks, we would just change gears and we would play, we'd go play El Paso, you know, and it was, like, easy and just fun, and I never understood that. I never understood, and and I never understood, like, I, I did encounter that attitude a lot where, like, musicians in the orchestra were just, like, put out because we had a concert that night. I'm like, don't you guys like to play? What are you doing here if you don't like to play? Okay, with that, let's get on to some music. Got some new music for you today. 
This might be a good time to pause the podcast, get yourself a nice glass of iced tea, maybe a cigar, and maybe dim the lights. I don't know. How do you listen to this show? (laughs) Today's music comes to us from Mike Woods, and Mike writes, Dear Chris Hales, I am an avid listener of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast, which I discovered after typing something like Podcast Composers Guitar Classical into the Apple Podcast search engine a few years ago. That was around episode 4, and I have been listening regularly since then. Thank you for an enjoyable podcast. I really appreciate the laid-back tone, the range of topics, and of course the chance to discover new music by talented guitarists and composers around the world. One topic that came up a while ago was classical guitar in film. Here in France, where I live, there is a well-known film released in 1952 called... I can't even say that. The English translation is Forbidden Games. It's the story of a boy and a girl coping with, the lo- coping with loss during the Second World War, and the score features the recurring theme of the well-known guitar piece that is often given a name like traditional Spanish romance in anthologies. It's the one where you start with an E minor arpeggio with open strings and your pinky on the B on the high string. I think almost everyone listening that plays the guitar knows that piece. The performance by the guitarist Narciso Yepes is a perfect companion to the theme of childhood in wartime and elevates the tenderness and melancholy of the film in a way rarely achieved by any score, let alone a classical guitar. This piece of music is so associated with the film in France that guitarists refer to it as... I don't know how to say it. (laughs) By the name of this movie. Here is a link to the original trailer to give an idea. I would like to submit some music for your consideration for airing on the podcast. I've sent three pieces from an informal suite of guitar bagatelles short and whimsical classical guitar pieces that blend influences from rock, jazz, and flamenco. The pieces I am sending are called Canyon, Maestoso, and Nocturne. I'll leave links below to my social media accounts. It would be great to hear from and connect with any contributors and fellow listeners. Thank you very much. Hope to hear from you soon, and until then, have a great start to your summer. Regards, Mike Woods. Thanks, Mike. I will uh, put up those links at classicalguitarcomposers.com, and I've, I checked out this video you sent, and it, it really is, the guitar has a way of speaking and setting a mood like nothing else, and this, this film looks heartbreaking. <laughs> I don't know if I want to watch it, but I'm going to also include that link on the website I also have to say, and I've talked about this before, I just love the the sound of a classical guitar, an old recording of classical guitar where you have just a little bit of that tape warble or, you know, not the highest resolution, but it it evokes stuff in my mind that I really can't get anywhere else. I've always been, like, kind of fascinated by the history of places just even local places you know I'll often like go to a place and just try to picture it 
50 years ago, 100 years ago, you know, and 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 there's whatever wonder it is that I possess or whatever it is about that that I find interesting, that sound of like an old warbly recording of a guitar just evokes that emotion in me. Hey, regarding classical guitar and film, I've actually learned something about one of my all-time favorite movies. So I've mentioned before that Friday the 13th has some classical guitar in it, this little moment. I have always thought it was just like a dude noodling on the guitar. And the guy who's supposedly playing it is Harry Crosby, Bing Crosby's son, who was um, trying to kind of make a name for himself on his own, not not using his father's uh, <laughs> fame, but trying to like prove himself in the real world and, and you know, got, got himself a role in this little movie called Friday the 13th. And anyway, so he's sitting there playing the guitar. I'm pretty sure he's not actually playing it, though. It's like one of those where the camera's like showing him from behind. So, it, But anyway, that is a real piece. It's not just a guy noodling. And that piece is called something else I I can't pronounce, but it's a Swedish folk song. And it translates as Dear Old Stockholm. And so I've I've listened to several recordings of the song, and there's all kinds of arrangements of it, and it is a gorgeous melody. And there are just there's a lot of great arrangements of it and great song recordings of it. It's you know, I, I would imagine uh, Swedish listeners probably know it. Yeah, I had no idea. So in and and it, <laughs> no idea why dear old Stockholm made it into Friday the Thirteenth on the classical guitar, but it's awesome. So I kind of want to get an arrangement for guitar now and learn it. Okay, so sorry. Back to the music. This is three pieces by Mike Woods, writing to us from France, and they are Canyon, Maestoso, and Nocturne. Thank you. 
And there it is. We've just heard three pieces by Mike Woods, three bagatelles, titled Canyon, Maestoso, and Nocturne. Thanks, Mike. With that, I'm going to call it a show. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate you tuning in. And I'll be back next month with another episode, probably a short episode, followed by a good old October horror movie discussion. I hope you all have a great September. Until next time, keep on plucking.